Welcome to Grand New Podcast with BearingDrift.com. We are beyond excited. This is yes. this is a big interview about a big national race that is being talked about in the New York Times and the Washington it's Post. It's a household name, I would it, say. Yeah, this is huge. And so we have Dr. Cameron Webb with us. Dr. Webb is the fifth district nominee for the Democratic Party, and he is somewhat is growing phenomenon in Virginia because it's just looking like lightning striking in all sorts of places across the fifth district. And so and I, I would add, Matt, we are interviewing the only man that I've met that is crazy enough to go to law, med school and then <laughs> law school. First of all, we have to ask, are your siblings mad at the dinner table when they go around and talk about their work day? Like, is that, uh, <laughs> My, my siblings are way cooler than me. I mean, what they've done, my siblings do awesome stuff. So I have a, a brother who's a filmmaker, a sister who's a, a nurse for, for brand new babies. Uh, I have, you know, I have a sister who's an educator. My, my, my siblings are awesome. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That you, you should be very proud of yourself, though. Anybody who can sit through medical school and law school and then go be a White House fellow, I, I, I'm amazed at your work. So let's talk, let's introduce yourself a little bit. You, um, you are from Appomattox, is that right? You're from the Appomattox area? Well, close, my wife is from Appomattox. So she's, okay. she grew up in Appomattox. Uh, I'm from Spotsylvania County. So Spotsy, as we call it, grew up there in, uh, okay. in, um, in yeah, Central Virginia. And so it's kind of cool because the 5th Congressional District is, is made up of Central and Southside Virginia largely. And so... I grew up playing high school basketball against half the counties in the central part, and she grew up running track against the counties in the southern part. So it's a lot of fun. Um, okay. And, and so now you went off, you went to UVA for undergrad. Mm -hmm. Then um, Loyola, right? Loyola. Uh, med, med school at Wake Forest in North Carolina, law school at Loyola University, Chicago. Uh, and then the, the med school, law school thing just because it always throws people off. They're like, when did this happen? And I'm like, I did them at the same time, but I did uh, three years of med school, two and a half years of law school, then a year and a half of both at the same time, uh, and then went off to my residency. So it was, it was a crazy stretch, but, uh, but listen, you do what you gotta do to, to, to have the skill set that you wanna, wanna develop to make a difference. Do you, do you ever sleep? Like, do you have, do you have like dedicated sleep time? Like, do you go to sleep? Like you know, it's it's a it's a bad habit. I'm not much of a sleeper. I'm I'm like a four and a half hours a night kind of guy, and I think it drives people crazy because what my staff will tell you is that I also don't, don't drink coffee, and so they're just like, "You're not a normal human." And so, okay, okay. <laughs> if I don't wait, have you don't drink coffee, I, I don't have drink coffee. I live on black coffee, and yeah. you probably <laughs> you probably diagnosed me with about eight different health problems because of it. Um, well, but, to quote, uh, what is it, Terry McAuliffe? Sleep when you're dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's his motto. <laughs> that's his thing. Uh, that's his thing. So you got out of law school and medical school. You became a White House fellow and right. worked for President Obama. And then all of a sudden, 2016 happens. You start working for President Trump. They move your desk into the hall, which was really shady, in my opinion. Um, yeah. As a teacher, as a teacher, you know, that's my main job. Whenever you move someone out into the hallway, like what were they were they trying to punish you? 
Well, you know, I think what it was, you have to remember, go back to the first days of the Trump administration. And listen, I'm a, I'm a pretty candid guy. Uh, you just came out of the Obama administration and you've got this like slim young black guy who's, who's still there. And the Trump administration was, was fairly obsessed with this idea that there were spies everywhere. Cause every day there was some leak coming out of the white house. So from their standpoint, they were just like, listen, we don't know you well enough to, to trust you. So we're just going to put you outside of the office so that you can't listen to sensitive conversations. And, and, you know, I always like to clarify this story because uh, initially, I was working in the Office of Cabinet Affairs. In those first few weeks of the Trump administration, they were trying to get a bunch of cabinet officials approved by the Senate. And so they were just like, I don't, I don't know this guy. Let's leave him in the hallway. And I was like, there's got to be something I can do to help. And they were like, no, no, you can't help us. But what happened actually was that on the other side of the executive office building, there was the Domestic Policy Council staff. And so that was like the education policy, the healthcare policy. Um, there was an urban affairs and revitalization with uh, one of my good friends, Jerron Smith, who's still there. He's the senior most African-American man in the Trump White House at this point. And, and you know, what's interesting is they were just like, why don't you come work with us? And so we, we went through this whole process to get me shifted over to a different office because cabinet affairs wasn't, they weren't having it, man. They didn't want to work with me, but, but domestic policy council did. And so I, I just moved to the other side of the building. It took a couple of weeks, but moved to the other side of the building and got to work on, on healthcare instead and work on, on issues in education and, and workforce development. So it was uh, ultimately ended up being a better spot for me. Did you get to meet the president while you were there? Well, <laughs> there's so many long stories from my time in the Trump White House. So I met President Obama, but okay. President Trump was all set to meet with us. He ultimately decided not to um, because one of his staff members met with us first and she felt like, you know, as the White House fellow, she felt like, you know, we asked some, some pretty tough questions. And we do. I mean, the, the group, it's a nonpartisan group, you know, so okay. you got the entire political spectrum. And I think she just kind of advised the president, hey, maybe this isn't the best, uh, the best group for you to meet with. I don't know why she had that impression, because I, if I know anything about President Trump, I don't think he would shy away from, from that kind of room. I think he kind of gets a lot of energy out of it sometimes. But, yeah. but in any case... He, um, he decided not to meet with our group, which was disappointing, but, but he signed my certificate. So in my office, as a White House fellow, it's, it's got Donald Trump's signature, which I, as a doctor, I'll tell you, it looks like an unstable cardiac arrhythmia, uh, the, the crazy rhythm, but, but hey, everybody's got their own signature. <laughs> Are you diagnosing the, oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm just saying it's just the signature, just the signature. All right. So do you have a bad signature as a doctor? Is it all like just... Terrible. It's terrible. You, terrible. Can, you can make out three letters. <laughs> um, so you came back to UVA and you mm -hmm. practice at UVA now and one of the best hospitals in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And really, so you practice internal medicine kind of like, can you talk about what you do at UVA? Yeah, so I'm, I do a couple of things at UVA. I have really three different jobs, but I'm, you know, I'm an internal medicine doctor, a hospitalist by training. So the way I describe it is when folks get really sick, you know, back 30 years ago, they would come into the hospital and their primary care doctor would come in and visit them while they're in the hospital. These days, we kind of split those responsibilities. So primary care doctors, they take care of folks from the outpatient side. And folks like me, I'm a hospitalist. If you have pneumonia or if you have problems with your kidney or with your lungs and you need to be hospitalized, 
I specialize in taking care of that. And so, you know, typically what I say is those are the conditions I'm taking care of. You know, since March, uh, I work on the COVID unit at UVA. So, you know, every time I'm working in the hospital, I'm working uh, a lot of times in the special pathogens unit, taking care of COVID patients, which is, which is a very different experience. And I, I hope we, we take some time to talk about that because I think, um, there, you know, it's been a pandemic that's been politicized to some extent, but if you're in there practicing, uh, you know, nurses, physicians, staff, I think we all just have a very different opinion of this pandemic and we want to do everything in our power to keep people safe. And so that's kind of where we stand. So that's what I do clinically, but then also I'm the director of health policy and equity. So I teach all of the medical students, all of the public health students and a lot of undergrads about healthcare policy. So I, I talk about the policies that shape our healthcare system. What's funny is I actually, uh, every semester, I bring in one of my colleagues from the Trump White House, who, uh, who we maintain a really good relationship. She was in the Domestic Policy Council. She was the healthcare lead. And I always bring her in so the students can watch us kind of, uh, you know, tackle these issues side by side. And they love it. They're just like, wait a minute, you guys disagree and you, you like each other? And we're like, yeah, that's normal. That's actually what it's supposed to look like. So, and, and so I do that teaching part. And then, um, you know, just kind of leadership. I do a lot of work reaching out into the community to, uh, to work on issues that, that make people sicker um, and, and try to help keep people safe and healthy. That's, that's kind of what my work looks like at UVA. Dr. Webb, I actually think that's the perfect segue before we kind of, you know, dive into, especially your run for Congress. Um, as someone that, uh, that deals with medicine, as someone that deals with COVID patients, you know, Matt and I have talked, you know, outside of uh, this podcast, we talk like every day about this. And we were like, why can't, um, what is the, as someone who's an expert um, at medicine, what is the hesitancy to use hydroxychloroquine? And is there an approach to kind of, uh, let's throw everything at this virus until something yeah. works? Well, that's what we did. You know, we, we threw everything at this virus. And remember, New York City had a tremendous number of cases. And they literally threw everything at it, including hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, zinc, which you've heard about. Um, Pepsid, you know, like, you know, when you have some, some yeah. GI upset, Pepsid, they threw at it. And there were studies done on this Pepsid help. You know, at the end of the day, the hesitancy about hydroxychloroquine isn't because we're scared of it. I, I treat people with hydroxychloroquine if they have things like lupus. The thing is, it just doesn't work with COVID. And we've, we've designed several studies. The studies that suggested that it worked were done on a very small number of people. And there were other conditions that we think explain why you had better outcomes. The patients who are on hydroxychloroquine were also on steroids. And we've done independent studies that show the steroids work. And so when we design studies that are saying specifically hydroxychloroquine, does it work? The answers have consistently been no. And so as doctors, we're just going to follow the science. We don't care about the politics of, of you know, who, who suggested to use hydroxychloroquine. Listen, if it's going to keep people healthier, stop people from getting sick, I will be the first person to advocate for it. What I know is that the evidence, the data tells me that that's not the case with hydroxychloroquine. I wish it were. Um, I, I wish it were a medicine that did exactly that. But, um, but you don't want to throw the kitchen sink at everybody because there's a harm to any medication, right? And for hydroxychloroquine in particular, it can cause people's potassium levels to go low, which can cause cardiac problems. And so we don't, we don't use it just saying, well, you know, it's like a vitamin. Just throw it at it and see what happens. It's not. It actually, there's a downside, uh, you know, if folks are using it. So... So we want to be careful, only use things that work. So let me ask what, from a medical standpoint, what is actually working in the fight for COVID? What is actually working when you've got a patient in UVA hospital and they're diagnosed with COVID-19, what is actually working and with mm -hmm. them? I, and I want to hear that from your perspective. 
Yeah. So clinically, I'll tell you, last weekend I was working in the COVID unit, had somebody come into the hospital who had a new diagnosis of COVID and suddenly they had an oxygen requirement. There are two things that I'm going to think about off the top from a medication standpoint. And the first is steroids. If I can get them on these high dose steroids, we found that that helps. So we use dexamethasone uh, or decadron as one of our steroids. Fine. The other one is one that there was an NIH trial for something called remdesivir. Um, it's an antiviral. It's also shown to decrease the length of time that people have symptoms. And so it also works as well. Those are the two main ones that we, that we lean on. And then there's other kind of techniques that we use. Um, for some patients, if they're having trouble breathing, what we'll do is we'll have them, if they're capable of it, we'll have them turn over and lie on their stomach instead of on their back. Because what that does is it allows kind of another part of your lungs to get air because air is going to rise. And so, you know, we use these different techniques to, to try to keep people safe and healthy. Um, but, but those are the main things. Um, and, then, and then you're just working with symptoms. You're trying to keep people's symptoms under control. Uh, COVID causes a lot of problems with blood clots in, in a lot of different places. So people are seeing strokes, we're seeing blood clots in the lungs. And so we use blood thinners uh, in a lot of instances to keep people from having clotting episodes. So we're learning a lot about not just what the virus does, but what the body's reaction to the virus does and how we can, how we can work around that. So we're, I'll tell you, we're getting better at this every single day. And, um, and so, you know, I'm glad about that as a provider taking care of COVID patients in, you know, March, April was a very different thing than taking care of them now in August in that I have a better sense of what works. I have a better sense of who to start what medications in, but, um, but still my, my number one thing, when you ask me what works, wearing a mask, keeping physical distance, keeping yourself from getting COVID is the best thing that works because I've, I've seen 25-year-olds in my unit and I've seen 95-year-olds in my unit. And so, you know, that, that's why I say just, just stay safe, try to stay away from that virus. Dr. Webb, as someone, you know, who is on the front lines of this, uh, you know, combating COVID, um, I want to ask you as, um, as a doctor, but also as uh, someone um, who champions and, um, is a spokesman on equity. Um, I work in a school. So, you know, right now we're trying to, I work in Loudoun County. We made the decision to do all digital, right? So I, I want to ask you, as, as someone in the, in the medical field, will there be a safe way to go back to school if we kind of all put our heads together? Because my, my concern as a teacher is I feel guilty because I don't see, I actually see distance learning um, impacting equity among students in a huge way. 100%. When it comes to internet access and like EL students, SPED students, how do we, I mean, that's a, that's a loaded question, but how do we get back quickly and ensure equity? Yeah, it, you're, you're asking the right question because the fact of the matter is I've got a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. So as a parent, I want with all my heart to get my kids back to school. I was, I was telling somebody the other day, I was like, I'm supposed to be walking my little boy into his first day of kindergarten any day now, you know, and that as a parent, and I always tell people we, we were two and done, there will be no more web children, <laughs> but this is, this is my last and my youngest child. I really wanted that moment of walking, walking him into his first day of school. And, and I recognize there, there's a sense of loss. I think for my daughter, who's nine, she's a fourth grader. She misses her friends so much. And this is such a critical time for socialization. Uh, you know, and I think that's one of those things. I want her to have that space. There's nothing that I want more than for my kids to be in school. There's a safe way to get our kids into schools. That, the answer is yes. Um, I'll, I'll point you to uh, uh, the case example of, of what we've seen, kind of that, 
that Danish example, because really in other parts of the world, we've seen kids go back to school. And yes, we saw a small uptick in the number of COVID cases when young people went back to school, but they had gotten the virus under control in their community first. And then they were like, all right, we know what to do. We know how to do this. Let's get it done. And I want to be clear, you know, I think that one of the biggest challenges that we continue to have is testing. And so if you're talking about getting folks back to school, but you don't have a reliable testing mechanism, you're always going to run into that problem. You're, you know, you're always going to run into folks being like, well, I'm going to see if this passes because if it takes 10 days for me to get a test result back, I don't want to miss 10 days of school or a parent missing 10 days of work, right? So we, what we have to do is we have to get the systems in place. That's the part where I get so frustrated because if you ask me, if I'm an executive of any entity and you ask me, hey, we've got a crisis, we need to address it, we're six months in, man, we got, we got to get this done. We should be in front of this so our economy is back on track. And that's the biggest thing that's limiting it is the continued spread of this virus. In other places, New York has shown us you can get the virus under control in the United States. So we just need to do those things to get it under control in all of our communities. And I think that's where we are. So yes, the answer is we absolutely can. I think we do have to be aware of the things that can come out of left field. So, you know, I always give people the example, cold and flu season is coming. And so right now we say, you have any symptom, stay home, <laughs> you know, don't go anywhere. Man, kids come in with a runny nose, stuffy nose, cough every single day. You know this every single day yep. from like October till March. And so which of those kids are staying home? <laughs> and, and if those kids are staying home, are they also telling their teacher that, you know, Johnny had the sniffles yesterday? Well, suddenly this becomes a different thing, you know? And so how do we work around that? And the only way you do is by really widespread testing. Johnny had the sniffles, but he doesn't have COVID. So Johnny can come back to school, you know? We have to get that part in place. Um, we've got to do that. We need to do it well. Um, I think those, that's one of the big things. And then societally, we need to do better at, at just those basics. Like, hey, let's all wear masks. And it's, it's not because, and I want to debunk that myth. Wearing a mask is not going to cause you know, uh, issues with retaining carbon dioxide. It's not going to cause health harm to the great majority of individuals. There are some folks who, for health purposes, it might be harder for them to wear masks, but for the great majority of individuals, um, wearing a mask will cause absolutely no problem whatsoever. And so I think we, ju we just need to do the things we need to do. We need to be diligent. Our kids are going back to college. I shouldn't call them kids, they're adults. But, uh, <laughs> but they're, they're going back to college. You know, I, I, I was on the phone with a group of college students earlier today on a Zoom call. And one thing I said was, when you're going back to school, you gotta keep in mind, the world is watching you, you know, and you were counting on you to be responsible because if we saw what happened at Notre Dame, we saw what happened at UNC, we can't afford to have that happen at all of our colleges in all of these communities, because it's gonna set our economy back. We're counting on you to be responsible, you know? And I think that's part of this. We need people to make responsible decisions collectively so that we can move forward collectively. This is, has to be a moment of national unity rather than more of this partisan bickering that we're seeing. Well, I've learned more in the past old 15 minutes than uh, I, I ever, like, <laughs> very good at explaining things. Very good bedside manner, I will add. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I want to address something. I just want to address a big old elephant in the room, and I just want to address it really importantly. Dr. Webb, um, I don't know how well you know you've heard about us or, or our website we were extremely invested in congressman Riggleman and we love him he's a he's he's a good guy we i consider him a friend 
not just a colleague, not just an acquaintance, not somebody we met through politics. That man is a good man. And I am bitter, and I know a lot of my friends are too, because we watched a nomination get stolen from us. And I will use the word stolen. Um, your opponent, I mean, talk, about, talk about voter suppression. I mean, it, it happened at that convention. I, I, I mean, Denver was playing a claw machine with the toys all greased on the claw machine. That's how I, I so I, I want to know what your message is to those Riggleman supporters who said, I love my congressman, but this happened. So what do we say to those people to say, you know, you don't have to go with this option? What, what's the different perspective? Can I ask that question? Absolutely. And, and listen, I want to be clear. Uh, I entered into this race last summer with the expectation I'd be running against Congressman Riggleman, running against your friend. But what I said all along was, he's going to be tough to beat because everybody I talk to, especially the folks who I, I've gotten to know and really appreciate down in Nelson County, Democrat, Independent, or Republican, they're like, I like him. <laughs> they're like, he's my friend. My kids have been over to his house. He's a good guy. And I'm, I'm a good guy. And so for me, I'm just like, oh, man, it's going to be a battle of good guys. It's going to be a battle of people that folks are like, I like being around this guy. That's a tough one, especially in a district that leans conservative. What I, what I tell people is this. I think Denver Riggleman appealed to a lot of voters, particularly independents in this district, um, because of the way that he talked about the issues. He, he talked about the issues in a way that you don't hear him dripping in partisan politics. What he's saying is he wants real solutions. And that's something that people just really want to hear. So that's an area where we agree. I, I'll, I'll be clear. When he officiated that same-sex wedding, I was like, hey, that's my kind of guy. You know, he's, he's willing to invest in that notion that People can make the decisions that they want to make with their lives. So on the individual liberties front, I think we think, see a lot of things similarly. And I think uh, when we've talked about, you know, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and the impact that was having in Nelson County, we're, we're on the same side of that one, too. We talk about the way that he's willing to work for bipartisan solutions for climate change. Look, we're, we're in that same mindset. And so I think that I remember when I first saw I was I actually went I took a group of students to Congressman Riggleman's office. Uh, and, and this was a group of students from the University of Virginia. I was like, let's go meet with Congressman Riggleman. We sat down in the office and we were talking to one of his chief staffers. He was out of town that day, but one of his chief staffers. And we were just going through the issues. And I was like, you know, what they kept telling me was he thinks we should keep the Affordable Care Act and build upon it. He thinks that, yes, it got a lot of people coverage. It expanded Medicaid, but there's better that we can do. And I was like, I can work with that. This was long before I decided to run for office. And so I guess where I start is, for a lot of folks who supported Congressman Riggleman, what I would say is, I hope that they'll just hear me out. I hope that they'll just take the time to get to know me as an individual. I hope that they'll understand there's something unique about an individual who worked for President Obama and worked for President Trump. I hope that what they'll see is the similar character that it's not about partisanship to me. It's about doing what's in the best interest of people. I hope that they'll see that the way that he served our country in the military and he's passionate about service is similar to how I serve our community as a physician, and I'm passionate about service. There's a character there that's similar. Um, we're going to disagree on some issues, but I'm always going to listen. I'm always going to be willing to engage because that's who I am and that's how I am. And, and so I think that, and, I, and I'll tell you this, if that's your friend, tell Congressman Riggleman that I want to meet with him. I would love to chat with him because I think that 
What's important for me is to hear and glean all that he's learned in his time in this seat. I really want to want to engage with him. I think that honestly, to tell the truth, there's a there's a lot that he's uh, that he's experienced in this seat that's going to be helpful to whoever is inhabiting this seat. And and I want to learn from it. I want to build from it. Um, and and we may have a different letter next to our name, D or R, but at the end of the day, we have a similar passion for serving this district. As Matt just as Matt just said, um, you know, there's been a lot of people have taken that race and were just deeply hurt by it. There's a lot of wounds there. Uh, there's also a lot of wounds. I mean, I would say in the fifth district, um, Charlottesville, you know, as, as you know, Charlottesville was um, a national moment and a national reckoning and a tragedy. Um, and that's in your district. How do we move forward? Not only heal politically, um, but, you know, heal racially starting in the fifth district. How do we go forward? You, you, you got a name. We talked about elephants in the room. You've got a name that there is a, a race problem in the United States. There continues to be. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I, I, I'm not one to take pot shots, but I will say I heard uh, at an event recently, Mr. Good said that he doesn't believe that systemic racism exists in the United States anymore. And and that to me is just such an it's such an <laughs> it's, <laughs> That's it's covered. a moment of ignoring objective fact. And, and, and so I can't take you seriously if you can't even acknowledge objective fact. Now, you may say, I personally don't harbor any racist sentiments, but he either doesn't understand what the term systemic racism means, or he's not willing to look at the data. The thing is, when I talk about systemic racism, I say, I say it all the time in this race, listen, we want everybody to have access to the American dream. We believe that every single person should have opportunities for success in the United States. If you look at our education system and you look at the performance, there are, there's evidence of systemic racism in that. If you look at our criminal justice system, there's evidence of systemic racism. And so what we have to do is say, how can we create a more just world? That's not about taking things from anybody. It's about unlocking the truth and the reality of that American dream. That's true patriotism right there. It's saying that that vision, that view, of the framers of our constitution, we hold that so dear and we want that to apply to 330 million individuals. And so that's what we're focused on. You know, you can't take, you can't be the representative of a district like this that had the experience of the Unite the Right rally in 2017 that, that cha fundamentally and forever changed what the word Charlottesville means, not just in the United States, but around the world and act like it didn't exist. If you do that, you are doing such a disservice to, to our area and our ability to show who we truly are, you know? And I think that's, that's the big thing. So, so, you know, I think that you're right. That it is, we, we've had these moments of a reckoning. Now the question is, what do we do with it? How do we make sure that the future as we move forward is forged so that everybody, no matter race or ethnicity, no matter sexual orientation or gender identity, no matter if they live in a very rural community or in a very urban area, no matter who they are, the, the potential for success is great. That's what we have to unlock. And that's not a reality right now. And if we don't acknowledge that, then we truly can't make America great. We can't do it if we don't acknowledge that. So I'm going to just lead in since you mentioned your opponent. And yes, I facepalmed when, when he was mentioned. Um, because he, oh my God. Every week we'll text each other an article and I'm like, yep, guess what Bob Good said. And we're just like... <laughs> Here we go again. But it's Virginia's Roy Moore. I, I, I think it is. I think it is. I think Mike's right. Um, the New York Times had an article this week, 
and it was about your race. And it was bizarre. I'm just going to be honest. The statements made by your opponent and his staff were just bizarre. I, I don't think – and I, I, I shocked your staff immensely when um, I started talking about how much I support LGBTQ rights. They were like, what is this coming out of a Republican? We don't understand. And, and I'm like, I'm just kind of taken aback. I understand that you want to protect your – house of worship and you want it to be safe and, and that's fine but but like the rhetoric used was wrong and i i don't yeah. want to but the 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 homophobia and transphobia used was just wrong and i think there's a way uh, just just i don't even know well, well matt if i can if i can jump in there what i'll say is that that mr good does not represent the Republican Party very well, and and I'm saying this as somebody who agree worked, with that. Thank <laughs> you. Thank well, as somebody who worked in the Trump White House, and I've heard a range of views from the party, you know. And again, he hasn't he hasn't worked in at the federal level with Republicans. Maybe he just doesn't understand what Republicans actually believe. But what I saw in the Trump White House was a desire to be a big tent party. And even though I, I will say sometimes the president's rhetoric gets it really wrong, I do think that there's a desire among a lot of his staff to be that kind of big tent party. And I think that I think that Mr. Good misses that. I think he's he's stuck in this notion of, of culture war. I think that he's stuck in this notion of, hey, this is a, a bright red uh, district. And I, when he said that, I was just like, oh, you must not be talking about the fifth because because no, no. <laughs> this this is not and the reason why Denver Riggleman was so successful is that he knew that is that he knew that he had to he had to talk about issues like healthcare and climate change and and engage folks across the spectrum independents are what define the fifth swing voters those individuals who are just like listen it's not about party to me it's about good thoughtful things that are going to change you know improve my everyday life the things that matter the most to me that's what voters care about and so by moving purely to ideology and really focusing in on, hey, I'm a bright red biblical conservative, he's, he's boxing himself in. Here's, what I, here's my prediction. I think that he's, he's going to lose this race, not just because I'm in it. I think he's going to lose himself this race unless he decides to come off of that notion of being a bright red biblical conservative. He's going to have to acknowledge that he was wrong for the way that he challenged Congressman Riggleman for being a moderate, uh, more moderate conservative. And he's gonna to have to acknowledge that, hey, you know what, maybe that is the best way as a conservative to represent this district. If he's willing to man up and, and be big enough to say, you know what, I kinda of had, had the congressman wrong on that, he might have a chance of winning this race still. I think as long as he boxes himself into that corner of bright red biblical conservative, because here's, here's the thing, I grew up in the church, my father-in-law's a pastor in Southside, I can go toe to toe with Bob Good on scripture. We can do that all day. When I talk about when I talk about my race in the primary and the three individuals who ran with me, my colleagues on the Democratic side, I always tell people, iron sharpens iron. I'm a better candidate today because I went toe to toe with Roger Dean Huffstetler, went toe to toe with Claire Russo and with John Lazinski. And then I'll say that's Proverbs 27:17. So Bob Good 
listen, we can talk scripture. We can talk about what my faith as a Christian really means. And we can talk about how those Christian values include love. They include unity. They include this notion of healing. And that, that the Bible asks us, remember when Jesus was talking to the apostles, he said, I will make you fishers of men. He didn't say, I will make you smack people over the head and tell them exactly what they need to do. Because Denver Riggleman knows, a lot of libertarians in this district know, that's not what's going to work in this district. You can be a strong Christian and still have respect and value for people who don't view the world the same way you do. I'm going to say that over and over again. And unless Bob Good moves a little more in that direction, he's going to lose this race uh, in, a, in a big way on November 3rd. So I think we know now, just talking to you, why Bob Good refuses to debate you. <laughs> well, I, I, Mike, Mike was like... I'm going to ask that question. Why won't Bob Good debate Yeah, because we were throwing everything against the wall, and I'm like, oh, now yeah. I know. Well, I, I think he's, I think he's going to debate me. I think he, I think he will. I think, that, I think he knows that if he doesn't, uh, I mean, he, he strikes me as a pretty jocular, competitive guy, and I think he knows how it looks if he doesn't debate me. I hope he does. And I was on the moot court team when I was in law school. Uh, we, our, our team was national champions. I love the debate. So, so I can't wait. And I want to have this contest of ideas. And I want to have this contest of what it means to be a Christian and in politics. And I want to have this contest of what truly represents the 5th Congressional District. And I want him to stand or, or you know, sit in a box on a screen next to me and, and explain to people why his view and his values better represents them than mine. And what I'll say is, well, when I was working for President Obama and President Trump, or while I'm serving our community in the midst of a pandemic, and all of the things that I do that I think resonate with the voters of this district. I want to hear him point to, I mean, he keeps trying to label me as this radical leftist. And you guys have been on, how, how long we've been on this? 35 minutes? It doesn't yeah. take people long to get a, a sense of who I really am. And so that's not going to fly for very long for him. He knows that the second that we have a debate, people are going to see who I really am. His argument's going to fall apart. He's going to have to find another path to victory. Well, in the middle of uh, a national pandemic, um, we're grappling with uh, racial justice. He's worried about a trans woman going to church. So th that's, that's where we're at. I want to pivot now to the night. This is the night where uh, the first um, black woman candidate um, as VP that's ever been nominated by political party, so it happens to be your party, um, is going to take the stage tonight. How did it feel that that was one of your first endorsements, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, was, it was our first big national endorsement. And I'll tell you this, um, when, when Senator Harris reached out, um, I, I, was, I was so excited because I have a lot of respect for her. Uh, you know, my, my dad worked in law enforcement for a long time for the DEA. And, and one other thing that I recognize and acknowledge about Senator Harris is that she's passionate about justice in, in criminal justice reform but she has really good relationships with law enforcement. That's such an important thing to do. And so I was just like, she just has the right kind of voice in the right kind of moment. And, and so when she reached out, I was just like, that, that's exciting. And I'm so excited to have her support. Uh, that was huge for us. That got us a lot of momentum. And she actually called me uh, the night of the primary after I won the primary. And man, I, I, I would play you the, the message that she left me. Because believe it or not, I missed her call. I'm, I'm terrible. But, but, uh, but, but what's funny is she was, I mean, the, the genuine enthusiasm. She was like, Dr. Webb, I'm so proud of you. She's just, she's a good person. She, she's a good leader. And, I, and I'm excited. I'm excited to hear what she has to say. I think that um, 
you know, similarly, she and I value the idea of really engaging issues in a meaningful way. I think because I'm trained as a lawyer, because I have that background in advocacy, I really respect the way that she makes her arguments. And so I'm excited to hear how she frames it this evening. But, um, you know, I, I can tell you this for a fact. Uh, Senator Harris isn't sitting here saying it was her lifelong goal to make history as the first black woman to be named on a ticket as, as a vice presidential nominee. That's an artifact, that's a glass ceiling that should have been shattered some point in our past. You know, it's just a reality of where we are. And similarly, you know, it, it's not lost on me that I would be the first black representative of the fifth district. That's not why I do this. That's not why I'm here. Um, it, you know, I would be the first black physician to be a voting member of Congress. I didn't even know that till a month into my campaign. The, the fact is, these are glass ceilings that our society often forgets haven't been shattered yet. And so I think it's part of that process of becoming a more perfect union. When we look at that idea that, hey, opportunities exist for everybody. And my nine-year-old daughter loves her some Senator Kamala Harris. And so when she sees her on the screen, she lights up. And my daughter, Avery, tells everybody she's going to be president of the United States one day. And I think seeing Senator Harris makes her know that that's true because you can't be what you don't see. And seeing Senator Harris is part of what excites and energizes her. And, and you know, I know, Mike, you were saying you're in education. You've seen that yeah. up close and personal. When, when kids see Represent something, it, it, it changes their life. It changes their trajectory. So tonight's going to change a lot of lives. Yeah, I mean, and that's something Matt and I talked about. I mean, even even as Republicans, like it, it doesn't even it doesn't even matter. I thought Joe picking Kamala like that was an emotional moment for all. It should be for all of us as Americans. But that happened. I mean, this is a moment where we can say as a country, like, you know, no matter who you are, you can make it to the White House. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I think about I think about all the time that I was raised in really, really rural Southwest Virginia. And the fact that I get to rub elbows with all these people like that, that's what the American dream is all about. And so yeah. I, I think that's going to be something that we talk about tonight. I want to address one thing and pivot back to um, the conversation about your opponent a little bit. Um, you have been endorsed by the Human Rights Campaign. You make no qualms about it. One of the things I like about you is you make no qualms about it that you were a supporter of LGBTQ rights and marriage equality. And um, just a little bit about me, I met my wife through my best friend who's gay. Mm. And I, if it wasn't for her, I'd be hooked on whiskey and laying in a ditch. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think we can all say that as married men, like if we didn't have our wives, we'd probably be hooked on, hooked on whiskey. Like we'd be in a bad way. <laughs> and to know that my best friend gave me, let me meet my wife. And I, like, I want him to find that love and find that for himself and who God made him to be. And so I'm a huge supporter of marriage equality. I'm a huge supporter of gay rights. And the fact that, you know, this president love him or hate him. He supported Neil Gorsuch just defended LGBTQ rights in the spring. Right. Mm -hmm. has appointed five U.S. district court judges that are LGBTQ, um, first cabinet official. I mean, all this stuff. And, and like, is Bob Good just on Mars on this issue? Like, he's just, he's, he's built for a different time or place. And, and you know, I want to go back because you made an, an awesome point. And, and I hope that, I, I hope, 
I hope Mr. Good watches this. <laughs> you know, one, one thing that I'll say is that if you go back to that Supreme Court decision, uh, the one, so, so there was a question in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, you know, does that actually extend to sexual orientation and gender identity when it talks about protecting against discrimination based on sex? And, and again, that was, the, that was the, the question at the heart of the Virginia Values Act that, that Bob Good is saying was, was so problematic. The Supreme Court made its decision in mid-June, and Chief Justice Roberts and Neil Gorsuch were part of that six to three majority decision that said, hey, that's right, we shouldn't be discriminating based on sexual orientation or gender identity. I want to fast forward to what President Trump said afterward, because what he said is, okay, that sounds good. He doesn't agree with, with everything, but he was just like, no, they probably made a good decision, the court on this one. I think that, I think that sometimes, you know, Mr. Good may miss the fact that even the party isn't with him on this. I hope, you know, I hope he's trying to reach out to the college Republicans at the University of Virginia, because with his current views, good luck getting their support, because they're not with him on that issue. They've stated as such. So try reaching out to some millennials or to some Gen Z, um, you know, conservatives, and they're not going to be with him on this. And he's going to need them to win this race. And so you know, yes, you can dig your heels into being, you know, what he, what he calls a biblical conservative protecting Judeo-Christian values. But what I know is that, like I said, our church is about love. And so, so I think he's going to have a hard time with that. I think that he's going to have a hard time convincing people that that's in lockstep with what President Trump believes. Uh, and so he's kind of a man on an island on this one. Well, it's pretty telling. Mike and I had this conversation. The President of the United States has endorsed Marjorie Green, who is a conspiracy theorist, but he has not endorsed Bob Good yet. Like, so what does that say about Bob Good? Like, what does that say about your opponent? Like, he'll endorse conspiracy theorists. He but endorsed Roy Moore, but not Bob Good, unless he learned his lesson. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And, and, and President Trump, you know, who knows what's going to happen? I know that he, it's important to him to have, have uh, you know, Republicans in Congress. So he may come in and endorse Bob Good. But I think it was, he made it pretty clear his preference was Congressman Rickleman. I think that was, he made no bones about that. And so... You know, at this point, you know, it's not about, it's not purely about partisanship. It's about who's a better fit, not just for the district, but for the nation. And, uh, and, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying evangelicals are bad for the nation. What I, you know, what I'm saying is I don't even think that, that Mr. Good is representing what Christian values look like in these political conversations. Praise and that, the Lord, somebody <laughs> gets it. Um, but, and, and so, that yesterday, yeah. people came to Jesus with, their whole face falling off. And he didn't say, you can't be a part of my circle. You have to leave. That's right. Yeah, I mean, there are so many stories. And remember, the, the story about let he who was without sin cast the first stone, you know, that was a woman who was walking in who they said, you know, we would call that sexual immorality. And all that Jesus said to her down the road was, okay, now go forth and sin no more. There was love there. There was forgiveness. There was thoughtfulness. There was actually an invitation into the body of Christ. And again, like I told you, I can go toe to toe with Bob Good on scripture all day long. We can do this. We can have Bible study at my house. Come on over. But the, the, the point is, those values are really rooted in love and they're rooted in inviting people in and letting them know what the love of Christ looks like. And, and so I think that's, what's important. That's what he, you know, I think he's missing right now, or maybe he's just not messaging it right. You know, I don't have any reason to believe that he's a bad human being. Maybe he's just bad at communicating. Um, but, but I think that whatever it may be, um, you know, his message the other day was clearly transphobic. 
it, it clearly was homophobic. It clearly gave this impression that there was no space, no room in our society for people uh, of the LGBTQ plus community. And that is not a message that we can tolerate in 2020, not our society. That's not who we are. Well, you know, as well as I do, he's got UVA sitting in his district and UVA is one of the most wonderfully diverse communities, although you're bad at football. Um, <laughs> we beat tech. <laughs> we don't acknowledge that on this podcast. It didn't happen. That's alternative facts. That did not happen. Um, I'm JMU, so I'm neutral. I don't, um, you know. But uh, no, I just, I've really enjoyed sitting and talking to you, Dr. Webb. You, first of all, I think you might have missed a theology degree somewhere. Like, did you, did you study a little theology somewhere along the way? I, when, you, when you grow up in church, and like I said, my father-in-law is a pastor. I think, you know, you just spend a lot of time in the word. I think that's, it, it becomes a part of you. And I think that, that um, you know, the way that we use that, that living word, the way that we use it in our lives, that's going to be important. And I think that um, we, can, we can create a better, a stronger, a more effective message as Christians in this political space. And I, I think that's gonna, that is also going to show up uh, at, at the polls on November 3rd. I think people are going to, it's not going to be a matter of if you're a Christian, vote for Bob Good. And if you're not, vote for, for Dr. Webb. No, it's not going to look like that. I think Christians recognize that they, they, they express themselves and express their love in different ways. Well, we always ask a fun question. And so I don't know when you have time, but... Are you reading anything fun right now? Are you watching anything on Netflix? Like, do you do you do anything yeah, like to relax? Yeah, yeah. I, I I actually I read every night, and so um, I have this bad habit of reading usually two books at the same time. So some they're often I'm pretty two nervous. degrees so, at I the mean, same time. Yeah, no, what what can I do? But one is more of the philosophical variety. It's called fair market fairness. It's called free market fairness. And the idea there is just, you know, there are ways for us to combine our notions of the power and expression that is the free market. And at the same time, we can be focused on social justice and fairness and how that works. And, and what does that look like? So I think just chewing on that philosophical notion, that's something that, that I'm excited about. And the other is a book that's about political innovation. It's about the reality that we've got this, as, they, as the authors call it, it's a new book. It's by Catherine Gale and Michael Porter. Really good book. I have no stake in it, but I just am enjoying it. But it's, a, it's just this notion that we've got this political system that's got these two parties that seems to give people very polarized choices at times, but really we need to find ways to restore the voice of the people in our political system and what could and should that look like. And so just, again, sharpening my mind about what our democracy should look like, what its, its continued progress uh, should look like to make sure that the voice of the people is at the center of it. So. You know, I'm sorry. I wish I was reading some like random fantasy novel that would make people feel like I'm really interesting. I do. Oh, one thing I'll add in terms of fun things. My kids and I are in the middle of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So we have watched 15 movies now um, of the 23, I think it is. Um, okay. I think I, we just got through Ant-Man and, uh, and Captain America. Uh, we just did... Um, the Captain America Civil War. So, so they're into it, uh, and I'm excited. And so, we're gonna keep going with the cinematic universe. But, uh, but it's fun stuff. A huge comic, guys. So, any any recommendations you need? Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, <laughs> that you are just. I just. I think about you know, I grew up. I grew up um, in my high school years. I was in the Methodist Church, and John Wesley had a quote. And I, and I say it about all good candidates. 
John Wesley had a quote, and he said, catch on fire with enthusiasm. People will come for miles just to watch you burn. Dr. Webb, they're going to come for miles just to watch you burn. I hope you know that. This is the race to watch nationally. um, You are inspiring. You are interesting. And and really, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. And we want to see more of you. Um, and we want to, you know, you are so different from the mold of a usual democratic candidate. You don't spit partisan lines at us, which I, I think is great. You kind of, I, I like your perspective. I really do. So I'll no MSNBC talking points. It's just all organic. I, I haven't heard an MSNBC talking point yet. Or mother Jones or whatever. <laughs> box, one of those. Nah. Um, I want to say thank you for coming on with us. I know there's probably some apprehension hearing two Republicans want to talk to you about your race, and you're probably like, but well, real quick, what I'll say to that is that if I if I uh, shied away from having conversations with who had diff- uh, conversations with folks who have different views than than I do, then I shouldn't be in this seat. Right. I, I genuinely believe that the nature of representation is being having broad enough shoulders to talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime, stand your ground when you need to uh, and always speak truth. But listen, you got, you know, again, the Bible tells us to be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. And so that idea of being quick to listen, I incorporate that in everything that I do. That's from James at Bob Goods Washington. Oh, wow. All right. Mic drop on that one. Oh, well. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I can't wait till these debates because these debates are going to be good. This will be primetime television. I just tell you. Dr. Webb, please come on any time you have, you have a platform here. Well, you have a platform. Thanks for having me. Um, and we appreciate you coming on. And um, our next episode is last week we had Susan Swecker come on and preview the Democratic National Convention. Um, we're going to do it a little bit differently. Next week, we're going to have Chairman Rich Anderson, who is of the Republican Party of Virginia, give us a report of the Republican National Convention. And so we're going to talk about that. But otherwise, we thank Dr. Webb, and we appreciate your time.